Um, it's my privilege now to be able to participate in presenting God's word to you all this morning. Um, may the preaching of God's word bless you and encourage you to live a life as elect exiles in this fallen world. As we face suffering of all kinds, may we remember our King Jesus, the Son of God who went before us and who is also going to bring us home. Please turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15, and we're going to look at the first 15 verses. And Danny will come up and read for us, and Ezekiel. I didn't know he was coming, but this is, um, if you are using the, the Bibles under your chairs, the blue Bibles, it's on page 497, Mark 15. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Thank you. Uh, please pray with me. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Church on Mill, <clears throat> what do you do when the storm clouds of suffering come your way? Where do you turn when life becomes so burdensome that it just you don't feel like going on? No matter your gender or your age, your tax bracket or highest attained educational level, you won't escape suffering. None of us here in this room or in this world are going to make it off this planet having not suffered first. How is that for an uplifting message? <laughs> in preparation for this sermon, I Googled quotes on suffering. And if you do that, there are just pages and pages of quotes. Uh, quotes from Aristotle to Bob Marley, or Karl Marx to John Calvin, the Dalai Lama, and Bill Gates. It doesn't matter who you are or where you came from. Everybody experiences suffering. 
Uh, we don't always talk about it. We, we often don't even like talking about suffering, but it's reality. And remember earlier in Mark, Jesus told his disciples that he was going to suffer and die. Jesus told his disciples explicitly three times about the impending doom and suffering that he was going to face when, when they got to Jerusalem. If you remember just a couple Sundays ago, in the upper room, we read that Jesus said he was going to be betrayed by one of the ones sitting around the table. Jesus tells us how it is. He told the disciples the truth, and he tells us the truth still today through his word. And the truth is that in this room, there has been tremendous suffering. In this room, there is still suffering today. Suffering from the sin, decay, and death of this world. Like, who hasn't experienced unrealized expectations, broken promises, plans not going the way that you had hoped, the betrayal of friends, the death of a loved one? It's been said, churches are not museums for saints, but they are hospitals for broken sinners. Churches should be places that don't pretend everything is okay when it isn't. Imagine a place where people can come and hear the truth, and not just that after hearing, but they can be embraced and picked up, mended, made whole. Churches are not museums for people pretending like they're perfect saints, but churches are hospitals for broken, suffering sinners. If you're new here, if you're a guest, again, just welcome to Church on Mill. Um, we're so glad you're here. Uh, this church isn't full of perfect people. I know, I've been here for like a decade. <laughs> but there are people here who are trying to live genuinely the grace and love that the Bible teaches. Find a church that is like a hospital for broken sinners. It's not an entertainment center with lights and fog machines. It's not a, a museum where everyone is uh, in the right place and people pretend to be perfect saints. Uh, this may be uh, the end of uh, Danny and I being here at Church on Mill, but if you're new, this might be the start for you to come and find a church home, a church that is genuine, a church that is for broken people. And for us as Christians, we face an additional kind of suffering than the rest of the world because we're marked by the Spirit and we're sought after by an enemy. See, Christians suffer for faith because the king of this world, the devil, he wages a war still today against the king, Jesus, and his people. We must not forget the suffering that Christ endured. And the reason why is in part because we must not forget what it means to be a Christian. What it means to be a Christian is to suffer with Christ and even to suffer like Christ. The passage we look at today shares a truth and example for the believer who faces injustice, mistreatment, and suffering. The Gospel of Mark is an account from the eyewitness of the disciple Peter. And then later, the early church receives the letter of 1 Peter, which is a letter for the persecuted and suffering Christian, and it answers the question, how Christian will you live 
and carry on in suffering. That's what, that's what the book, First Peter, the letter, is all about. How will the Christian carry on in suffering? And Peter's answer is remember Christ's suffering. Remember his resurrection. You see, it was as if when the original readers of First Peter, when they read that letter, it was as if they were to read First Peter in one hand and in the other hand have the Gospel of Mark side by side. Christian, are you suffering? Read and remember the suffering Christ. Christian, are you feeling defeated by persecution? Remember Christ's persecution and remember his glorious resurrection. Peter says, apply the gospel, the cross of Christ, and then his empty tomb and his resurrection to your present circumstances because there and only there are we given strength to endure and overcome all the pains of our time. Those of us who've been beaten down by the suffering of this world can find solace in the gospel of Jesus. This morning in Mark 15, 1 to 15, we will look at Christ's sufferings and consider the insights that Peter calls the Christian to walk away with. So this morning, where we're going? Mark 15, I see it break into kind of two scenes. The first scene with Jesus before Pilate, and then the second scene, Jesus before a crowd. We will look at each scene and consider Peter's application as he writes them in 1 Peter. So our first scene, Jesus before Pilate. Look at Mark 15, verse 1. As we begin, we might remember that Pastor Chuck taught last Sunday the end of Mark 14, and he described it as two men that were on trial. Jesus before the high priest and the Sanhedrin, and Peter before a slave girl and a crowd. You see, Mark 15 is now just a continuation of this judicial process, and it's the next step. Looking at verse one, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And all of this was in the morning. It says, as soon as it was morning, Sunrise was around 5 a.m., so this was about 5 or 6 a.m. The chief priest held a consultation. This was the prosecutors planning their strategy. They wanted to put Jesus to death, but they did not have the authority to do so. One of the ways Rome exerted their dominance over their conquered peoples was to remove the, the power of the sword or capital punishment from their conquered people, just as another reminder that they're not actually in control. They don't get to decide and have final over authority in judgment. Looking at verse two, for the first time in Mark's gospel, we are introduced to Pilate. Pontius Pilate, he was the proconsul or governor uh, of Rome over Judea between the years 26, about 26 to 37 AD. His responsibility was to do three things. One, he was supposed to command the armies. Two, he was an administrator. For instance, the taxes, collecting of taxes for Rome. And three, he was a judge. He was the, the Supreme Court on behalf of the Emperor Tiberius. Pilate was, was a, a brutal man. He was not liked by the Jews. He was greatly disliked. Eventually, history tells us he was even removed from his office because so much rioting and, and fighting against him. But Pilate here in verse two, he asks Jesus, 
Are you the king of the Jews? Throughout the entire account and judicial proceedings before Pilate, note that this is the only question that Jesus responds to. The Gospel of Mark focuses on the identity of Jesus. The Gospel of Mark is about who is Jesus. And so it kind of makes sense that here in the final hours before the crucifixion, Pilate, the one in the room with the most authority, he asks Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? The Gospel of John, John 18, verses 33 to 38, gives us a more detailed conversation. But Mark just quickly sums up the conversation, saying, Jesus said, you have said so. Pilate would continue to call Jesus the king of the Jews and even nail that title to the cross. Verse 3, the chief priests accused him of many things. This prosecuting team of, of chief priests, they had many accusations. If you were to look at the other gospel, Luke 23, verse 2, it tells us three things. They said that they accused Jesus of misleading the nation of Israel. Jesus is accused of telling people not to pay taxes. And, of course, Jesus is accused of claiming to be the king. Verse 4, and Pilate asked him again. So in the midst of all of these accusations, Jesus is silent. Pilate asks him again, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Have you ever experienced something like this? <clears throat> Friend, have you ever been accused? Have you ever experienced being accused of something that was untrue? Like, isn't that just one of the most infuriating things when you see someone being accused of something that you know that's not true, that's not right? And when you yourself are being accused of something untrue, how much self-control does it take to not just jump out and come to your own defense, to yell, let me show you, that's not right. Some of the most even-tempered, level-headed people, people who, who we know they like, never lose their cool, in moments like those, they explode, they fire back when they see the injustice of false accusations. What is Peter's take on all of this? Peter writes in 1 Peter 2, verse 18, he says, servants be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but get this, also to the unjust. It gets crazier. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Let's read verse 19 again. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Verse 20, for what credit is it? Is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. If you're a Christian, 1 Peter 2.21 says, you have been called to suffer. I don't know if uh, you knew that as a Christian, as anyone has told you, but Christians, you've been called to suffer. 
you will suffer injustice. And many of us, haven't we experienced that? Perhaps in your work, you'll have people say things about you that are untrue. Those lies will be said most likely behind your back, but sometimes to your face. You will have employers and supervisors that will lead well, but you will also have some that will lead unjustly, taking credit that is not theirs, passing promotions, bonuses, and the best work hours to the undeserved, leaving the deserving with none. Perhaps because of your faith, you will be passed over. Because of your faith, you might be socially marginalized, an outcast, not included. Your faith will be misunderstood and even at times be the source of your suffering. Just think of the world today, the culture that we live in, and consider the biblical teaching of marriage, the biblical teaching of gender, the Christian view on abortion, critical race theory, modesty, gossip, the way that we raise kids, even disciplining children, how we are to have fun, how we are to not have fun. It's not if the world is gonna disagree with you, it's just when, and many times it's gonna come as suffering. Peter says, if you're a Christian, you've been called to suffer. In your marriages, in your families, even in the church, you will suffer because of the sins and injustice of others. Everyone just uh, finished Thanksgiving, and isn't the Thanksgiving meal notorious for some of the conversations at the table? They're uh, colorful conversations, uh, interesting conversations, but sometimes they're just rough conversations with extended family. How many of us have faced the scoff of family for your faith? You got the pitiful or indignant look across the table a question that is really more of a judgment than an honest inquiry, more, an un, more of an underhanded jab than taking interest in you. 1 Peter 2.21, Christian, you've been called to suffer, and Christ left you an example to follow in his steps. And so let's think of Christ's example. Here in Mark 15, it is much like his reaction in chapter 14 before the Jewish religious leaders. You see, it's as if Peter, as he was writing 1 Peter 2, he had Mark 14 and 15 flipped open as he writes in 1 Peter 2, verse 22. Jesus, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus is in his final court proceedings He's before the Roman judge, Pilate. The prosecuting team of chief priests are spitting lies and accusations. They're accusing him of not paying taxes, but we know Jesus paid his taxes. In fact, he exhorted others to pay to Caesar what was Caesar's. On the other hand, the Pharisees, the ones accusing, they were the evil, the greedy ones handling the money. They said that Jesus wanted to incite a revolt, but Jesus wanted the farthest from that. Jesus never wanted earthly power by earthly means, but the chief priests built their lives around such idols. Like the hypocrisy would have made the most cool-headed person in the room just want to scream, but Jesus did not scream. Jesus did not open his mouth. Jesus did not sin. He did not lower himself to their level. Why? How? 
First Peter 2, 23, he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Although there was the strength of a Roman battalion, although there was 70 high-ranking Jews accusing him, although the devil was prowling around like a lion, already turning Judas into a betrayer, already striking the disciples so they fled and abandoned Christ, although Jesus was surrounded by enemies and powerful enemies, Jesus continued entrusting himself to God, the just judge, the one who in the end had everything under control. Brother and sister, in your suffering, when you are drowning in injustice, when your enemies have circled around you, when even those closest to you have seemed to abandon you, remember Jesus Christ and his example. Perhaps you feel overwhelmed in your struggle, like the struggle that you know you're gonna face tomorrow morning, the struggle and suffering that you're expecting this week, the suffering that seems unbearable and the enemy's too powerful. Remember Christ in your suffering. Remember his example and follow him. Entrust yourself to God, the just judge. He knows all of the lies that are being spread, the injustice and the evildoers, and they will not prevail in the final analysis. Remember Christ in your suffering. Our last takeaway that we have time for in this scene, Church on Mill, when you suffer like Christ, people notice. Look at Mark 15, verse five. What effect did Jesus' suffering have on Pilate? It was amazement. Pilate marveled. Pilate said he wondered how could it be so? Christian, our life should also have that effect. Peter tells us, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 14 and 15, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. John Piper reflects on this passage, particularly uh, verse 15. He says it's, it's one of those verses that has kept him up at night as he's pondered and thought. Piper reflected to himself, how often are people asking me, what is the reason for my hope? When was the last time I was asked that? And if it's been a while, why aren't people asking? Brother and sister in Christ, when was the last time someone asked you, how do you have so much hope? Where does your joy come from? How can you still be standing, even smiling, in your sufferings and hardships? Where does your hope come from? Do you see it there in Mark 15? Jesus is accused, mocked, beaten, all this under the cover of darkness. It's clearly unjust and sinister, but Jesus displays a quiet confidence. As the chief priest spit lies, Jesus opens not his mouth, and Pilate asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges are being brought against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. In other words, as Jesus continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly, and justly in his suffering, Pilate was amazed. In fact, Pilate was not only amazed, but by the end of all of this, Pilate was convinced 
that Jesus was innocent. Church on Mill, may our lives cause others to ask, how do you have such joy? From where does your hope come from? And brother and sister, remember, our hope is most evident in our darkest days. When we suffer like Christ, then and perhaps only then, people will begin to ask, how do you have such hope? And in those blessed God-ordained moments, when people ask you, how do you have so much hope and so much suffering, tell them, Jesus. Tell them that you're entrusting yourself to the God who judges justly. You're remembering the Christ who suffered more than you and who will bring you into glory and joy unparalleled by all the pain that you're currently suffering. And when people hear that, they're going to be amazed. And some will be saved. Like, Don't you want that? Church on Mill, remember Christ in your suffering and suffer like Christ so that the onlooking world would be amazed Say, where do you get such hope? Our second scene. In our first, we're introduced to Pilate, but now here in our second scene of the court proceedings, we meet another character, Barabbas. Look at verses six and seven. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner from whom they asked, and among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And it was the custom at that time that during the feast that Pilate would release a prisoner back to the Jews. Pilate would grant, grant clemency or pardon. Verse 8, the crowd was asking for just that. And in verse 9, Pilate, he answering them saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. Pilate had at this point come to believe that Jesus was innocent. If we looked at the other Gospels between verses 5 and 6, he had sent Jesus off to Herod of Antipas, who also returned him to Pilate, showing that Herod also thought Jesus was innocent. During the same time, Pilate's wife had come to him and said, have nothing to do with Jesus. Don't kill him. Just stay away from him. Have nothing to do with Jesus. And then Pilate had this idea he thought, cleverly, what if Jesus is the prisoner that is released this year? Perhaps then I could get out of this mess. It just might work. Look at verse 10. He perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered Jesus up. Like, wasn't it the crowd who just five days earlier welcomed Jesus in like a king? Isn't Jesus the miracle worker and wondrous teacher? Like, the chief priests, they're jealous of Jesus Jesus' clout and fame, but Jesus is no threat to Pilate or to Rome. Pilate saw no reason to execute Jesus, in fact, the opposite. And now, here with this tradition of granting pardon on Passover, Pilate thought, maybe I could convince the crowd to take Jesus. I'll win the crowd's favor. The chief priests wouldn't be able to oppose me because they'd have to oppose the crowd, and I wouldn't have to execute an innocent man. This could be my way out of the mess. But you see, Pilate was, not the only, the, Pilate was not the one ultimately in charge. And even his clever scheming would not thwart the plan of God. While humans are moral agents and culpable for their decisions, the mighty hand and plan of God continued on unfazed. 
Before we go further, let's take a second to consider this new character, Barabbas. Who was Barabbas? You might note, interestingly, he is mentioned in all four Gospels by name. We see here that Mark calls him a prisoner, a rebel, a murderer, an insurrectionist, and we're also given his name, Barabbas. Bar, Barabbas, Bar means son, and Abba means father or papa. So the prisoner in question, Barabbas, his name meant son of the father. Barabbas, son of the father. The Gospel of Mark, and in fact, every gospel is explicit to make note of his name. Why? It is because of what Pastor Chuck and the, the Gospel of Mark has been trying to tell us all these weeks and months. The Gospel of Mark is about revealing who is Jesus. And now here in the final hours of Jesus' life, Jesus is not only asked, is he a king? But also, here in the final court proceedings, stand two men. You have one. Only one of them can be released. And you have one, Barabbas, the son of the father, and you have the other, Jesus, the son of the father. One will be released. One will be executed. Who will the crowd choose? Verse 11 tells us, but the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. See how fickle the crowd, lacking conviction and character. And as we read on some of the saddest verses in all of scripture, verse 12, and Pilate again said to them, then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Verse 15 might make it seem as though um, after this conversation, Jesus was scourged. But taking closer look and looking at the other gospels, Jesus was already scourged, having scourged Jesus. See, when Pilate had Jesus stand up and said, what shall I do with this man you call the king of the Jews? Jesus at this time hardly looked like a man. The scourging would have been a whipping. 40 lashes, two men because it was an exhausting ordeal. At the end of each whip was metal and shards of rock. The torture was meant to peel off all the flesh off of a person's body. And so when Jesus said, what shall I do with this man? You had hardly a figure of a human standing and there was no pity in the crowd, just the screams to crucify. You can imagine Satan thinking to himself, I did it, but his foolish pride and sin was only used by the mighty hand of God to show God's greatness. See, if Satan was paying attention, this story had already been played out before. Remember, all the way back, Genesis 22, Abraham, the father of the faith, had one son, Isaac, and God called Abraham to climb up to the top of Mount Moriah and sacrifice his one and only son. Abraham obeyed, but before he reached out to slaughter his son, God stopped him and provided a ram to be sacrificed in Isaac's place. 
Genesis 22:14 says, "So Abraham called the name of that place, Mount Moriah, the Lord will provide, as it is to this as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided." Church on Mill, that mountain, that Mount Moriah, that was the same mountain and same location that Jesus was in Mark 15, hundreds of years later. And here before Pilate and the crowd stand two sons, Barabbas and Jesus. And like years before, with Abraham and Isaac, a son would be spared. But this time, in Mark 15, a son would also be sacrificed. And that there would be no replacement ram, but the replacement would be the Son of God. And what we must also not miss here in Mark 15, look at verse 6. It reminds the reader that this also took place at the feast of the Passover, the memorial feast to commemorate Exodus, the exodus of God's people, when God's mighty hand brought his people out of slavery and bondage. In Exodus 12, the angel of death would come that night and kill the firstborn of every household in Egypt, but the Israelites would be spared if they sacrificed an unblemished male lamb. Now all these years later, there would be another judgment and another sacrifice. See, Mark 15 was not the, only the same place as the sacrifice for Isaac, but it also falls on the same time as the Passover. And this time, judgment was not just for Egypt, but for the whole world. This time, it wasn't an unblemished male lamb, but the lamb of God, the son of God. This time, there would not just be temporary protection from sin, but a once and all, once and for all sacrifice for the people of God. See, Jesus' life is the life that pulls the Bible together and makes it make sense. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is the ocean where all the creeks and rivers of the Old Testament meet. Jesus is the person and place you can come and find shelter and safety in the midst of all your pain and suffering that this world brings. What did Peter think of all of this? Peter says in chapter three, verse 18 of 1 Peter, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the, righteousness for the, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. See, this is the great exchange. Jesus Christ, the son of the father, the righteous one to suffer and die, Barabbas, the son of the father, a rebel prisoner, convicted murderer, insurrectionist, released to live. Why? So that Jesus might bring us to God. This is the gospel. If you're not a Christian, if you wonder why the person who brought you here this morning has the hope that they have, it's because of this. What did Barabbas do to be pardoned? What did Barabbas do to get clemency, to be released, to be set free from prison, to be given life? Barabbas did nothing. He was a convicted criminal. Perhaps that middle cross was the cross he was destined for. But Jesus, the Son of God, stepped down from eternity into first century Israel. Jesus lived 33 years perfectly. He fulfilled all the law required and then freely gave his life up. Why? First Peter 
so that he might bring us to God. The gospel is that we did nothing to deserve life and freedom, but Christians are convicted criminals that have been brought to God through the payment of their sins by the blood of the sacrificial lamb, the Son of God. We know John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. Do you hear Jesus in that? That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And Do you hear Barabbas in that? Do you hear your own name in that? Peter tells us suffering Christians, remember Jesus who suffered for your sins. He has brought you into relationship with God when it was once broken. And through his righteous death, you have been made alive. And King Jesus will bring us home. So you can endure today the suffering and even identify with Christ in your suffering and act as Jesus would. Remember Jesus in your suffering. As we conclude this sermon, I want to end with a few final thoughts from 1 Peter. I think the words he wrote as he was thinking about Mark 15 and the suffering of Christ. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Church on Mill, don't be surprised when suffering comes. Don't be surprised when the crowd turns on you. It's gonna happen. And when it does, don't be like Pilate. Pilate, in the end, he wished to satisfy the crowd. He was led by fear and self-preservation. And he cowardly did not do as he ought. He did not judge righteously. He capitulated. Like you too will be tempted. And don't be like Pilate. You might note that Pilate, he did not ultimately satisfy the crowd. The Jews continued to revolt and fight against him, and eventually Pilate was uh, removed from his station in Judea and sent to Gaul. And history tells us that there, Pilate committed suicide. And Pilate wasn't the only one who committed suicide in this gospel account. Remember Judas, the betrayer, he also committed suicide. Friend, if you have not trusted or turned to Jesus, let Pilate and Judas be your warning. To reject Christ is to commit suicide. Church on Mill, don't be like the crowd. Don't be fickle. Don't lack conviction. Don't just be going where the people are and where the party is. As I think about my time back as a student at ASU, our college ministry was so large, there was several hundred people that would gather every Thursday night. But now as I uh, see across social media or catch up with them, so few of them, it seems, are continuing to follow the Lord. I just wonder how much of that time in college was just the crowd. Church on Mill, don't just be going to where the next fad or the next fun thing is, but build deep convictions in Christ. 
And church, I don't be like the chief priests trying to build your own kingdom, protecting your power and glory. Don't be Pharisees. Peter ends his letter, 1 Peter, with these words, chapter 5, verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. When, when Peter writes, suffered a little while, I think he means your entire life. <laughs> and remember also Peter who, who authored these words. Peter, Peter the denier. You remember that from just a week or two ago. Peter the one who failed in persecution. Peter the one who failed in suffering. But he wasn't just Peter the denier. He wrote this verse, and he was also Peter, the one who was restored. Peter, the one confirmed. He was Peter, the one strengthened. And Peter, the one established. And this verse is so beautiful. After you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore you. Peter wasn't restored by like an assistant or an angel or someone else, God himself. And for all of us, God himself will restore and establish and strengthen you. In your suffering, brother and sister, you too will fail. Who among us has not failed before persecution and suffering? Peter failed tremendously. But the God of grace met him in his brokenness and lifted him up. He can and he will do this for all who repent and turn to him. Our God offers peace and grace to those who suffer in his name. So Church on Mill, remember Christ in your sufferings. Please pray with me. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you tell us the truth and you continue to tell us the truth. God, we thank you for the example that you have given us in your son. And through your spirit, we have the, the strength and power to live this way that you've called us. And God, I just pray for Church on Mill that you would build this family up to live as elect exiles in a world that is against you. And God, I pray that you would just bless and give, grant their, the dreams to build a larger building, that you would do it in such a way that nobody could point to some clever human ingenuity, but we would all say, wow, by the mighty hand of God, he did something only he could do. And there would be a, a greater light here in the city of Tempe. And people would come to hear and see about this family at Church on Mill. And they would, they would begin to wonder and ask, how on earth do this, does this people have hope in the suffering that they face? when the culture and crowds of this world turn against them and they face persecution and suffering, and when the sin and pain and decay of this world comes upon them 
that there's still joy. I pray that people would ask the question, where is their hope? And they would say, we remember Christ in our sufferings, and many would come to believe in you. And out of this church, dozens and dozens of pastors and missionaries and moms and dads would, would raise their family up in the midst of hardships, clinging to the promises that you will return and you will glorify us as you glorified yourself in your resurrection. And God, so we pray for Church on Mill. We pray that Christians around the world, as they face persecution and suffering, would remember you who went before us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.